From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I can set it like a clock. It happens periodically. One of you approaches me to announce two things that are related to me. One, you have recently attempted to read through the Bible. Attempted. Cover to cover. And this being New Year's Day, Happy New Year's, by the way, uh, maybe there are some of you who are turning that over in your mind. And then two, when you get to the genealogies, you tap out. But typically this is because you tell me, you tell me this because you want sympathy, and I have some sympathy for you, but you maybe are also seeking advice about how to muscle through those obstacles to reading. And starting with the New Testament doesn't help, because if you begin with the first book in the New Testament, Matthew, right out of the gate, it's a genealogy. Well, here's the good news for those of you who maybe encounter this from time to time. There really aren't that many genealogies in the Bible compared to the entire collection of all the stories. There are other mountains to climb, to be sure. Um, the bad news, though, is that there are a few of them, and they tend to be in the beginning, because in this particular type of literature, this is an important piece when you are getting ready to tell a story. And so jumping again ahead to the New Testament doesn't help you. They're revisiting this form and this style of telling the story. Now, we didn't read the Gospel of Matthew today. We started with John's Gospel, which starts in a very different way. And I'm not going to read to you the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, his genealogy. Though for those of you who know me, you might worry that I would do that very thing. What is notable, though, and not surprising about Matthew's beginning... Matthew's genealogy is like the other scriptures that it is made up almost entirely of men. Forty, to be exact. Which again, underscores that this is a literary exercise. When they're writing these stories, they are a kind of religious history, but they are also a piece of literature. And there are 40 men in that genealogy, to be exact. It tracks the connection of Jesus all the way back to Abraham, and then Abraham to David, David to Joseph, and then bringing us finally to the infant Jesus, which we celebrate on this eighth day of Christmas. In Judaism, past and present, those two things are nearly indistinguishable. The past is prologue to the now. It matters what happens in the past. But in the midst of all of these men, which was typical, are five women, five mothers. And these women, these are women who speak to what God was up to when he entered the world in human form, when God decided, as Mother Sarah read the gospel, to put on flesh. Here are the five women. The first, her name is Tamar. This is the Tamar from the book of Genesis cast aside by her family and what was in their day and time their version of a welfare system, she has to manipulate the men in her life to ensure that she is taken care of. 
Rahab, and I want to say this delicately because there may be children in the room. Uh, she was a woman of the night, and uh, she was a foreigner. She was an other, an outsider, who betrays her people to, again, just like Tamar, to save her, her family, to take care of her family. And in doing so, she has a life-changing encounter with the one and only maker, creator God. She converts. Ruth, also an other, a foreigner, an outsider, who must beg for food until she manages again to manipulate a man to marry her so that she can be taken care of, so she can have security. Bathsheba, now she's not mentioned by name in Matthew's genealogy. She's mentioned by her husband, Uriah the Hittite, but she was a woman who was exploited by a powerful man, by King David, a man who was abusing his power, to be sure, the result being an adulterous and eventually a murderous affair between the two. And then finally, you might guess, Mary, Miriam, a young innocent woman who according to the song, according to the song that she wrote, in the wake of learning about this thing that she would be doing, she demonstrates this fierce sense of human rights, a yearning for justice. And she opened herself to the scorn by which she would receive by bringing this child out of wedlock into the world. It was those who were cast aside those who have to claw their way into subsistence, outsiders who have to depend and sometimes manipulate the kindness of others, and finally, God who is born into the world by a woman who recognized the injustice of it all. Now, in Matthew's gospel, they said that they are to name this baby Jesus, which means it's basically the name Joshua. Do you have any friends named Josh? Do they know that they were named after Jesus? That's a lot of pressure. <laughs> Name him Yeshua, Yahshua, which means God saves, because he will be born to save us from those sins. From those sins. That list of very real human beings who make up this lineage of his birth point to this reality. Jesus did not come into the world to reward the strong, and the right. He came into the world to embrace the broken. Jesus did not come to celebrate strength, but to heal the wounded and to support the weak. About a mile from Bethlehem at that time, the time that Jesus was born, sitting atop the tallest hill was a massive palace and it was a palace, almost like a summer home, that was built by King Herod the Great, that Jewish puppet king who was more than willing always to compromise with the, the systems and the superstructures of his day. It was called Herodium, and it had 200 polished marble steps leading to a series of towers and arches. It was beautiful. It would have been clearly in sight the night that Jesus was born blazing away with its torches and its candles. And so I think it begs the question, why wasn't Jesus born there? 
Was it a mistake for the Messiah to be born in such humble surroundings? Shouldn't there have been a palace instead of a barn? Shouldn't there have been a gold, delicate cradle instead of a feeding trough? Shouldn't there have been the best doctors present instead of just Mary and Joseph and whatever help they could manipulate to help them get through the night? Did God know what he was doing? And so I think the question is not what could God do, but rather what God chose to do in that night. God's choice was that though Christ was literally powerful and rich, yet for the sake of the world, he became poor. And so quietly, without fanfare or trumpets, God quietly slipped into this world as the son of a poor working class family. And what this means for all of us is that in order to come to God, in order to walk with him and grow into a truly spiritual life, it does not mean that you must be good. Let me say this again. It does not mean that you must be good or perfect or accomplished or respected or self-contained. All that is required is that you recognize that you have deep within you a need for God. That is all that is required for God to begin God's work of salvation within you. In larger theological sort of themes, there's a, a theme that is sometimes identified as works righteousness. Now, this is not something that Episcopalians spend a lot of time worrying about. But having grown up in the Baptist tradition, you know, it was really dr drilled into us that there's nothing that you can do to earn or receive God's salvation. And so part of what they would do when they would drag us off to youth camp is they would spend the week trying to convince us how weak we actually were so that we realized our need for God. I work as a chaplain at Cassidy School which is sometimes called, and I think it is, Oklahoma's premier college preparatory school, something that Episcopalians do very well. And I'm haunted every day by the high school chapel that I have to plan and enact. These are some really intelligent and very cynical kids. <laughs> and so to bring to them this idea that they are in need of God, when they are living and working and evolving in a world that is all about accomplishment. It's all about succeeding based on what they can do, what they can accomplish. And it's going to be on to Northwestern and to Stanford and to Brown. They live in a world of works righteousness. And so how do I say to them, there are going to be moments that even in all of your success, and all of your strength when you're going to realize that you have a deep need for something else. Something that you can't yourself achieve. In this season of Christmas tide, let's remind ourselves that even though all of us, I think many of us, are striving and working hard to be good that God came into the world not to celebrate that, 
but rather to point out to us our need for him and his willingness to help us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.